the church calendar. But today we're going to be thinking uh, about Palm Sunday. This is Palm Sunday. And this is a, a wonderful passage to think and consider as we think of the, the identity of Jesus and who he is. Matthew 21. I'm going to read from verse 1. I'm going to read down to verse 17. Verse 17. It's God's word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And he said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Please keep your Bible open as we think of those, those pas- this passage. Let's just have a brief word of prayer as we come to study God's Word. Father, we pray as with our Bibles in front of us open, we ask that our hearts likewise would be open as well. We ask that you would speak only you can speak through the power of your spirit, through your inspired word. And we ask it for the sake of our Saviour Jesus. Amen. I think if we're being totally honest, I think most of us would humbly, maybe begrudgingly admit that, that Palm Sunday 
is one of those dates in the Christian calendar that if we have to be honest, we find somewhat a little bit odd and unusual. We really get a Christmas and we really get Easter and, and Good Friday down to a T. We understand their, their significance. But Palm Sunday, what's that all about? We, we may feel at home with, with Palm Sunday as we, we think about it. Maybe it, it kindles or rekindles warm images in our hearts of Jesus being paraded into Jerusalem on a, on a donkey. And maybe once we think of this passage, maybe our minds go uh, down a bypath meadow. And maybe we think of whenever we were younger, we think of some Sunday school events. And we think of children with with branches, palm trees. Uh, We think of maybe some donkey coming to an event that you attended at school or at church. And maybe that's what we think of when we think of this fairly interesting event recorded to us in Scripture. And yes, we, we may get the, the sentiment behind it all. Yes, understand that it, this instigates in part the, the Easter week, the, the Passion week in our minds, and specifically for us as, as churches, as communities of believers, as, they, as we come together. It's a, it's a good marker for us to, to think and to start off the, the Easter week. But if I was to ask you and to pose the question before you, what is is Sunday all about. I wonder what your response would be. I wonder what would be the first things that come to your mind. Let's just be straight and honest again for a moment. If we had never heard this story before, as many in our world have never heard it, we would have to admit, if we came afresh to this, we would have to be honest to say this is a little strange. It is. It does seem a bit odd. Just If you can try to imagine you'd never heard this passage before and you've just heard it for the first time, the episode, the event of Jesus riding on a donkey as flocks of people lay cloaks and palm branches on the ground before him and chanting praises to him. Well, to our 21st century Western ears, it sounds kind of bizarre, doesn't it? Especially once we have the glory of hindsight and we know what takes place five days later in the life of Jesus. This seems like a very strange event. What is this passage all about? What specifically is it telling us? And the question that should be bubbling around in our mind, minds is actually the question that is within the text It's the question that the people of Jerusalem were asking of Jesus as he entered in verse 10. Who is this? Who is this man that that is riding on a donkey? What is all the fuss? What is all the fanfare all about? And we'll see clearly from this passage a, a variety of responses to that very simple question of who is this. But we also see exactly who this man explicitly claims to be. I'm very simply this morning going to give you an outline if you're, you're taking notes and want to sort of focus your minds on us, if this helps or a bit of organization. We're going to just flow through these verses. I just have three very simple points. 
not rocket science. We're going to think firstly about the, the prophecy fulfilled with Jesus in the first seven verses. Then we're going to think uh, and spend most of our time, we're going to park in verses 8 to 11. We're going to think about the response with the crowd and others there. And then we're going to briefly think from 12 to 17, the response of Jesus to this event. So let's think of our first point, prophecy fulfilled in verses 1 to 7. As I've already implied from the onset, this seems like a rather random episode. It seems at best innocuous, if we're being honest. But Jesus loaning a donkey to ride into Jerusalem was far from a random or coincidental event in history. It's actually filled to the brim with, with meaning and purpose. Jesus, as, as many of us will know, was a man that, that so much had been promised and prophesied concerning his, his birth, his life, his, his ministry, and subsequently after this, his, his death and, and resurrection. And there was lots on Jesus' shoulders. He had so much to live up to. And we see that as plain as day when we consider the many prophecies concerning his life. And often we think of very, the, the, the bookends of his life. We think of his birth, but also the, his, his death and his resurrections. The many predictions about him. But for a moment, if we can use just a moment of uh, sort of sanctified common sense and imagination, think about what would have been running through the mind of Jesus as, he, as, he, as, as Luke records that he turns his face to Jerusalem. He's finished his ministry in part and he sets his face to Jerusalem, which we all know what that means as he turns his face to his, his death on a cross. And what would have been running through the mind of Christ, I wonder? Surely we can admit and acknowledge that he would have been thinking about the pain the, the rejection, the anguish. That's surely what would have been going through our human minds if we were in a similar situation. And surely those things would have been flooding his mind. Yet his mind at this point is far from a, a pity party parade of what he would have to endure. What we see in this passage is Jesus comes into Jerusalem to really begin the last uh, episode, the last section, saga of of his life. We see a man who is utterly focused on fulfilling this particular, and dare I say once again, innocuous prophecy concerning the Messiah, Israel, God's people had been longing for. Jesus was was all about his father's plan, his great plan to to save his people. And that meant perfectly fulfilling every prophecy made about this this Messiah, this, this chosen, anointed one that would save the people, the nations. From from, from the beginning, we, we, we just have to sit back and we have to marvel at who Jesus is. And doesn't that, as we follow Jesus, as we love Jesus, as we are his children, as we look at him and we see his commitment, does that not infuse you with such hope? 
And here is just a very simple thing for us to do this morning as we just behold our Saviour. We see his loyalty, his commitment to fulfilling every prophecy. This is how devoted Jesus was to the mission that was set about for him. And what was his mission? His mission, above all, was to defeat sin, death, and sin. And yes, that will take place in five, six, seven days' time in his life. But nothing would derail, nothing would detract from him not being able to be in a position to do those things, to die perfectly on a cross, to offer us salvation. Nothing would get in the way of Jesus. Everything to a T had to be fulfilled. And for us, as we read an episode in his life where Jesus would ride humbly on a donkey into Jerusalem, which to us initially appears odd and random, is of the utmost importance to Christ. That even when he has his mind filled with what would lie ahead on a Roman cross in five days' time, that he would prioritize fulfilling this prophecy all so that he could be our perfect substitute on a cross. Well, there's so much more within this prophecy. Yes, Jesus fulfilled it. We understand. We grasp that. But what is it actually teaching us about Jesus? And in essence, it teaches us very simply exactly who Jesus is and the nature of his rule and ministry. We've read from, from Matthew's account, the, 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 the Palm Sunday uh, event is recorded in all the Gospels, which signifies its importance We don't find that with everything in the life of Jesus, but all Matthew, Mark, Luke and John record this event of Jesus' life. And Matthew records the the prophecy concerning Jesus. We we read about it in verse 5. And it's a prophecy that is recorded from the prophet Zechariah. And and Matthew records just in part um, um, the the, the prophecy, but if you turn back with me, to so just turn to, to the left, to the, the penultimate book in the, in the Old Testament, to Zechariah chapter 9. I just want to read ver- one verse. This is the, from the original passage, as Matthew just doesn't give us the full thing. And Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says this, of the coming king. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here is, according to Zechariah, the Messiah would be the coming king that God's people had been longing for. And how were they to know? He was to be one who was righteous, one of, of, of an incredible moral purity. But more than that, he owns salvation. He is salvation and he distributes salvation. We miss that just within Matthew's re- uh, reference. But turning back, we, we get it quite clearly what his nature is like. What will this, this Messiah, this anointed one be like? And sort of surely we, we sit back and we think, well, if God's going to send someone, if we're, if we're doing the math correctly, it's going to be someone who's going to be a, a mighty valiant warrior. 
Someone who's going to come in military strength to to liberate the Jewish people from their bondage to these these awful Roman oppressors. Surely this is the, the man, this is the figurehead that God's going to send. But no. The one that will be sent will be one who will be humble. One who will not be self-serving or self-interested. One who will not be an unstoppable war horse. He'll be one who enters this great city of worship tenderly and humbly on a donkey. And nothing, nothing at all speaks further from from power, might and resilience than, than a king riding on a donkey. If anything, we sort of maybe cringe and feel a little bit awkward and embarrassed. This is actually a sign of weakness, surely. But this is a visual picture of the life of Christ and how he will rule and reign. It won't be through brute force, but his kingdom will be inaugurated and will be one of humility and peace. It's certainly a picture of humility, isn't it? We all can agree on that entering on a donkey instead of a war horse. And certainly it, it, it evokes a contrast between, between God's kingdom and the kind of earthly kingdoms. We wouldn't have read of, or wouldn't imagined a Herod or Pilate arriving into Jerusalem the way Jesus arrives. Not a chance. But this speaks to us about the, the nature of God's kingdom, doesn't it? The kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of Christ is one of, of humility and peace. And in our, maybe in our, heart, our heart's desire, we may long for a powerful army general to trample over all our enemies. But that's not the way of God. That is not the way of his Savior. His victory would not be through the means we often associate with how we achieve victory. His victory would come through the ultimate demonstration of humility laying his life down for us, for this world. And once again, the very simple application is here. Behold your Savior. Behold how he conquers and rules in great humility, but at the same time so powerful. And with all this sort of flooding through our minds, there's so much to think about as we think of the the response within our own hearts. I want to take a moment to think about the response of those who were there 2,000 years ago. The response of the crowds. I just want to split this up into the three sort of subpoints as we think of three types of three people, groups contained within this, this, this these crowds, those who were there present. And really the crowds are a bit of a mixed bag of people. It's not all just the same person. It's not carbon copies of different individuals. There's quite a few groups within this large crowd. We'll take time to think about them. First group is there's just like this kind of typical crowd who, who followed Jesus. This, this typical crowd who followed Jesus through his life and ministry. They sort of seemed to always be on the periphery whenever something great and wonderful was happening. They were sort of just nearby, wanting to see, look in and sort of marvel and sort of be part of the buzz. And we read quite sort of in, in quite positive notes that, that they seem to uh, get along with what, what is happening. They're, they're full of, of praise and celebration. They're happy that, that Jesus is here. This being the, the Passover week, they're, they're full of excitement. 
And they're happy that, that Jesus is going to be part of this week here in Jerusalem. And it's not random, it's not just coincidental that they are excited and they celebrate and they sing praise to Jesus. As I mentioned, Passover week, and this often increased in anticipation with the, the Jewish people that, that, they, they were just re, that their hope was re-enthused that there was a coming Messiah. It was a great time to remind their hearts and minds that God was sending someone. So it just increased the, the, the levels of, oh, this could be it, this could be the time. And also more than that, it's just the immediate context. Jesus has been on the, uh, within his ministry. He's just quite literally, he's healed Lazarus. And, and very much so, there's a good chance that Lazarus actually could have been a part of the crowd. Lazarus is here with them. Here's this man who was dead, now he's alive. And here's the man who did it. There's great excitement. And then we, we, we read of, of what they sang. We read about it in verse 9. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That comes within the, the halal section of, of the Psalms, which are all about the Messiah, the coming Messiah. These guys are, this, these crowds are excited. They are anticipating something great. And then they lay these, these branches, these, these palm branches down. And palm was a, a Jewish symbol of, of national pride. But then there's also historical uh, connotations that are floating in their mind as well. Because as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, for many of these within the local crowd, this would have been recalling a historical event with another guy, a guy called Judas Maccabeus. And he had came in this intertestamental time between the Old and New Testament. And he came and he, he recovered Jerusalem and, and the temple from Antiochus, Antiochus during the, the, these times between the Old and New Testament. And in their mind's eyes, he comes riding a donkey with, with bringing victory and peace. And right, and here's Jesus. It's all, all, the stars are all aligning. Everything seems to be working in their favor. And the excitement is building. Now, often the temptation is when we think of Palm Sunday, and, and I've heard this before, and hands up, I've actually said this, is that we, we, we sort of go along with thinking like this. Well, we look at, Look at these people crying Hosanna on Sunday. But then by the time we get to Friday, they're shouting crucify him. Maybe you've heard that before. I've heard it and I've said it. But actually, once we dig a little bit deeper, um, to be quite clear is that by and large, the crowd that was on Sunday is a very different crowd that we find on Friday. Luke 19 and uh, Mark's accounts in Mark 15 uh, confirm this of who actually was part of the crowd. And the excited throng of Palm Sunday was actually filled with, with Galilean pilgrims and the larger group of disciples. And it wasn't really the Jerusalem crowd that we find in general on, on Friday. Now, could there have been some who would have changed their tune from Hosanna to crucify him? Well, yeah, possibly, potentially. Can our hearts be fickle in one day, in one morning, praising God by the evening, cursing his name, disobeying his word? Of course, we get that. But there's two 
different crowds going on. And part of the crowd that we find on the Sunday is the followers of Jesus. Followers of Jesus. We find them have been with Jesus again. Probably Lazarus is part of him. The women are with him. His disciples are with him. And we don't get this in, in Matthew's account, but we find this wonderful and this interesting verse in John chapter 12, verse 16. As they sit and they, in, 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 to soak this all in, it's not a great verse to the disciples, but we read in verse 16 of John 12, his disciples did not understand these things at first. They didn't understand. They didn't understand any of it. They were sort of part of the buzz, part of the excitement, but weren't grasping everything. And they read on, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And for a moment, we have to give the disciples a little bit of a break, surely. We would have been in the same boat. We can't really blame them. Jesus arrives as a king, but on a donkey. He had been talking so much about dying, but he was supposed to be the Messiah. How did all these piece together? didn't really add up for many of them. And then we see the, the third group, and that is the, the religious leaders. We get sort of parts of their story um, sort of through the, the four Gospels. We, get, um, the, we, we find them uh, featured in Matthew's Gospel once they get to the, the temple. But in, in, in Luke 19, uh, verse 39, uh, they, they want Jesus to, to rebuke his disciples for what they're doing. And then this leads into their, which increases their rage. And then they set about plotting to kill him. They, they, were, they were just finished with Jesus. They don't want him ruining their sacred Passover week. Enough was enough. And then we read in verse 10 of, of Matthew's account, that the, as Jesus eventually gets into Jerusalem, the whole city is stirred. They, they've, they've heard of the fanfare. They've, they've heard the noise. They see this, this parade that's going on as this man is, is brought into Jerusalem. They're stirred and no doubt the religious leaders, their paranoia just intensifies even more. But this brings us back to, again, verse 10, answer this question. Who is this? Who is this? Who is this man on the donkey? The crowd's response really says so much. In essence, that they don't really know who this is. The response to the question from the people in Jerusalem, he's a prophet from Nazareth. Maybe just another Elijah. Maybe he, he, he's, he's just following on from John the Baptist. It's just a, a generic statement that ultimately sits on the fence and doesn't give really an answer Either way, this Jesus, he's a prophet, just Nazareth. He's a great pro- prophet. You know, he, he's caused a, a, a bit of excitement. The crowd are following the, the wave of anticipation. And all of us, whoever we are, whatever our, our creed, our background, whether we have a strong affiliation to Christ or to the Christian faith or not, we are all looking for some sort of salvation. We want some sort of of saving, some sort of redemption in our lives. And all of us will go running and searching for our quote-unquote saviour, our salvation, in all sorts 
of places of locations. And often we can, which is good, we turn our gaze and our attention to Jesus. And we have to pose the question, well, what type of salvation can he offer? What type of redemption does Jesus give us? And the regrettable message of this passage is that virtually, well, majority of everyone didn't seem to understand. Let's start off with the religious leaders. Their hearts were embittered. They simply would not accept Jesus. Despite seeing time after time after time his miracles, his good works, his pure living, his ability to reason through the scriptures, they just would not accept They would not bow the knee. Is that your heart this morning? Despite the the truth of Christ, despite the goodness that he offers to you, just won't accept. I I remember doing a Bible study with um, uh, a guy a number of years ago and um, he was open to doing that and sort of quickly realized that he had a lot of questions a lot of doubts in his mind and sort of worked through them a lot and sort of was able hopefully to help him but it became quite apparently clear to me after a while that when one question was answered or maybe one doubt was sort of put to the side another would come and another would come and then another would come there would always seem to be one more and I remember asking him the question if I was able to answer every single question you had regarding the Christian faith, and if I was able to erase every doubt that you had, would you, would you believe? Would you become a Christian? And he asked, in fairness, in honesty, he said to me, no. He said no to me. And what does that tell us about that individual? That it wasn't a head problem. But it was a heart problem. Even though Jesus, in his, he knew, was true and was real, he just wouldn't let him be the Lord of his life and be his ruler. He didn't want the salvation Jesus offered him. He, wouldn't, he knew that if this was true and he bowed the knee, Jesus would lay claim to his life. We don't want to have hardened, embittered hearts. I want to acknowledge the truth of Christ. Second group is the large crowds. They've got caught up in the excitement and buzz of a potential Messiah. This could be the one. All the stars seem to be aligning. But ultimately, they're just looking for a national leader, aren't they? A good, strong political figurehead who would release them from their Roman oppression. Jesus was really just a means to an end. They wanted freedom, independence, physical needs met, essentially for their lives to become more comfortable. Is that what you're searching for in Jesus? Is that the type of salvation you long for? For Jesus to come in, take care of of our messy problems and allow us to live stress-free lives? The salvation we want, if that's it, is salvation that's inch deep. Jesus could, you know, just only heal me, fix relational struggles, sort out addiction problems. And yes, certainly Jesus can. I don't want to undermine those things. He can heal, mend relationships, liberate us from bad habits, 100%. But if we come to Jesus just for the benefits, 
and not for Jesus, then we've missed the point. We've missed his salvation, his great salvation, the essence of his salvation that he offers. You know, this is a triumphant entry for Jesus. The people triumph. They may be misguided. They may be misconceived. But it is a paradoxical triumphant entry entry for Jesus into Jerusalem. The king has arrived to rule and to liberate his people. But Jesus won't will not triumph over Roman oppression. But he'll triumph over a greater enemy, that, that being of sin, and thus bringing salvation to his people through the cross. And the third group, very quickly, is the disciples who just did not understand, as we mentioned. But everything changes as we read the second half of that verse in John 12. Everything changes after the resurrection. After the resurrection, they are able to to recall these events and they are able to tie everything together. And that can be a good place to be. They they had faith in Christ. Could they grasp the entirety of who he was and the message he proclaimed? Well, no, clearly not. Their lives dipped and died, moments where they seemed to get it and then others where they certainly didn't get it. But as a result of the resurrection, everything changed. Everything changed. We find men who were cards, who weren't even at the tomb, changed, who were willing to be martyrs. Everything changed. It all made sense. The empty tomb made the difference. And surely that's where we want to be. Yes, we, we have faith. We have questions. We don't get everything. But when we put it all together and take one look at that empty tomb, we're ultimately reminded of who Christ is and what he has done. Our faith is reignited. That is the difference. Christianity hangs and falls on the resurrection. And it's within the resurrection that we see the salvation that our hearts desperately need and we long for. A saving from the great enemy of death. And we only find that in Jesus. As we close, I just want to briefly think, because it would be tempting not to think about what follows in the, the preceding verses the response of Jesus. I said nothing would derail the, the intentions of Jesus. He knew the hearts of those who created such a carnival atmosphere for his arrival. But he does not for one moment soak in their acclaim. According to Matthew's account, he goes straight to the temple. This could have been more than likely it was the next day. But he goes, straight, he goes to the temple and he spends much of his time in the temple in the, in the, in the Easter week, the Passion week. And the contrast is incredible here. Is this the same Jesus that has just humbly rode into Jerusalem on a donkey who is now flipping tables and rebuking the moneylenders? And there's incredible irony contained in these verses from 12 to, to 17. There's a couple of points. We don't get it in Matthew's Gospel, but in the other Gospels, it makes clear exactly where in the temple this took place. This was far from the Holy of Holies, but this was actually in the, the court of the Gentiles, those who are outside the Jewish faith. And this was a place where, where outsiders could come and could have an opportunity to worship, to worship the one true living, creating God. But what are they met with? They're met with corruption, with greed. So here is Jesus entering the, the court of the Gentiles, and what is he doing? Here's the irony to cleanse it from Jewish defilement. See the irony? The temple is being used for corruption and the abuse of those who are impoverished, 
more than likely for those who, who couldn't afford sacrifices, they're being ripped off. And here Jesus enters with righteous anger, brings order and restores purity to his Father's house. It's an incredible picture of the a metaphor of the, the cleansing Jesus offers. And the other great irony is this, and this is the irony of all ironies in a sense, is that the, the, the blind, that lame, and that children, simple in mind, are full of worship of Jesus. They're coming to Jesus to be healed, to give, them, to give him worship. But the chief priests and scribes are filled with rage. And the irony is that the blind people can see who Jesus is, but the religious upper class can't. And ultimately with this all summarizing is that we have a firm rebuke from Jesus in this section. It's a final judgment on the Jewish leaders and people. It's fascinating that the, the temple cleansing takes place on the, on the cusp of, of Christ's death. You sort of think about that, how intentional that it happens now. It doesn't happen sort of midway through his ministry, but just leading up to his death. In but a little time, no longer will the temple be needed. Its curtain will be torn and a risen Savior will be in its place. And it will be for all people everywhere. As Jesus rapidly approaches the day and the hour of his climatic moment on earth, we find his, his, his true identity is revealed in ultra HD. In the earlier moments, he refrained his disciples from repeating or saying who he was, but now he openly shares of his death and resurrection to them and publicly declares who he is. And we see that in verses 16 and 17. Read with me, he says, And he said to them, do you hear that this, the, the Pharisees and the, the, scri- uh, the scribes uh, and the, the chief priests said to him, Do you hear what these are saying for unto these, the, the children? Uh, and Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You've prepared praise. The, scri- the chief, 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 chief scribes, uh, uh, chief priests, sorry, and the scribes, they're furious. They're enraged. Do you hear what the, the crowds are saying, these children? Do, do you hear this? They're saying that you're the, the son of David. Do you hear that they're crying Hosanna? And how does Jesus respond? He says, yes. And then he quotes uh, Psalm 8. Verses 1 to 2. Turn with me to Psalm 8 for a moment. Again, to get the the full reference will be helpful. Psalm 8, 1 to 2 says this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And Jesus is saying, the son of David, the Messiah, the majestic Lord who has set the glory in the heavens, who is God, that's me. That's me. But you have rejected me. You've rejected the Messiah. You've rejected God. 
the rebuke of the Jewish people and particularly of their leaders. It seemed like everyone seemed to love Jesus in this event, apart from the religious leaders. And Palm Sunday is about celebrating, but we see people celebrating for a variety of reasons. And it probes the question for us today, well, what type of Jesus are we seeking to celebrate? What type of salvation are we longing from Jesus? Are we looking some military, nationalistic, cultural figurehead? The knight in white shimmering armor to deal with our, our foes on, on the, di- the different cultural trends and spectrums? Are we looking for a Jesus that fits nicely into, into our way of thinking? that ticks our, our boxes, <clears throat> that does what we want, who, who makes our lives a little bit more com- uh, comfortable, takes us away from oppression and difficult living. Jesus comes as the righteous one who offers salvation, not as a conquering military leader. This is a triumphant entry. Palm Sunday signifies that the king has arrived. Jesus will triumph over the enemy of sin, bringing salvation to his people through his righteous sacrifice on the cross that lay ahead five days in five days' time.